0: I think we've got Ruth who's going to read our Bible reading, which is 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Uh, Lovely, got that on the slide. Is Ruth there, Jo? Yeah, lovely. (laughs) Thank you, Ruth. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of god and if the righteous is scarcely saved what will become ungodly and, and the sinner therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good thank you ruth let's just pray for john Lord, thank you for John. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him. I pray that you would just really instill in him your spirit. Your spirit would speak and we would have ears um, to hear what you're saying to us today. Lord, bless him as he speaks. In your name. Amen. Over to John. Thank you. Okay. uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, Can I just do a quick sound check? Can someone give me a thumbs up that they can hear me? Right. Excellent. And I can... Get my wardrobe a little better then. <laughs> um, good morning. Uh, it's kind of, it is still kind of weird to me that we, that, you know, we meet in this way. Um, and it is, as, as someone who, who preaches, quite, quite sort of limiting to sort of see you in this 21st century gallery of uh, living rooms. But, um, but welcome to my office. Um, People often comment when they come on to video meetings with me, oh, look how many books you've got behind you. You must be a really clever man. Um, I must point out, they are, in fact, DVDs. And I'm not a really clever man. I just watch an awful lot of films. Um, The passage that uh, Ruth read for us and the passage that we've got down to study this morning is is one of those, um, I was going to say rare, but they're not rare. There are a few passages in the scripture that um, when you read them, you're so shocked by them that you're not in entirely sure of what you should do. And one of the things that you might expect me to do this morning as a kind of Bible preacher is to to do a theological reflection. We can talk about the historicity, we can talk about the Christian suffering, we can talk about some sort of uh, allegorical way that this will all now fit into our understanding. And whilst that would be perfectly fine if we were together, and whilst that would be perfectly fine if I could see your reactions. Uh, and you wanted a a, a sort of a more theological thing, there are times when we are just faced in the Bible by stuff as shocking as this, and we just have to face it down. Uh, And there are times when we need to realize that we're not just the sum of our intellect. We're not just uh, thinking uh, people. We are actually existential. We feel as well. And this is one of the passages that I think demands an emotional reaction, rather than than a a rational deconstruction. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning, we're going to do this in three ways. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story. Um, And then by the power of Mark Tyndale, I'm going to uh, show you an audiovisual presentation, which corroborates the story that I've told you. Um, And then I'm going to come back in briefly, and and I'm, I'm going to react, I'm going to react to this passage. Um, And I can tell you now what I'm going to say. I'm going to say two things, and they're both hard things. The first thing is that to be a Christian is to follow a suffering saviour, is to follow a suffering servant. It is root and branch. You cannot escape it. If you want something else, you need to get on another bus. And the second thing to say is that the suffering of fellow Christians validates our faith in the same way that... The suffering of Christ validates our faith. Um, so that's what I'm going to say. Okay. So let me tell you a story. Um, in 2018, we, uh, as, a, as a church group, went to the New Wine Festival, which is a big Christian festival with all the usual things on play. And it ticks all the boxes. It was a lovely time. I'm very sad we're not going this year for all the, the fun that we had. And of course, there was a big program of Christian stuff uh, for us to come and be edified by. And one talk in particular looked quite good to all of us, which was a lady from North Korea. And North Korea was extremely topical at the time, still is a little bit now. Um, And so we decided that we would go uh, and see her. And Daisy, my uh, then 14-year-old daughter, uh, decided that she would come with us, which is something that pleased me greatly. And so we rolled up to this, um, you know, five and a half thousand of us rolled into this big tent uh, meeting thing. Um, and we were, we were treated, you know, just like we're all looking at each other on this amazing digital superhighway, the, the new wine is, is totally kitted up. It's very techno. And so it was odd that we were being asked to go back a couple of centuries and uh, be uh, imbibed in an oral tradition. So this, that, that talk that was given, you can't hear it. It wasn't recorded. We were told it wouldn't be recorded, nor can you go and find anyone's reaction, anyone's, you know, social media commentary on it because we were told there was a social media blackout and we were not permitted um, to talk about it in in those ways. And so we were drawn into a holy oral tradition. And the reason that we were given was because um, should what this lady, and we don't even have her name, let's call her Sue, should what this lady had to say to us uh, uh, get back upon her, it could result in her death. Now We thought that was a bit over the top. But that was until we heard her story. Uh, And when we heard her story, we knew that it was no longer over the top at all. In fact, she told us a story that contains suffering that was of biblical proportion. She told us a story that would not be out of place in the remembrance of an Auschwitz survivor, and yet her story was only a few years old. It was shocking to us. looked like somebody's mum. I mean, she wasn't a seasoned conference speaker. She wasn't an impressive uh, physical person. Um, and she couldn't speak English. And so she, she related her story through a translator. And so it was very broken for us to hear um, what had happened to her. She tells uh, a story of a perfectly ordinary uh, couple and their daughter living under the regime in North Korea, who one day made a decision. And that decision, in our language, was to follow Jesus Christ as saviour. Now, that decision is, is quite a luxurious one for us. We can make it quite happily. But of course, as you may know, in North Korea, um, it is illegal to hold that point of view. Um, if a family is discovered to have a Bible, the whole family is taken into prison. And if a person is discovered to have that faith, then they, then they, uh, then they are arrested. And in the course of time, although they did their best to keep it a secret, um, the faith of Soon, her husband, Was discovered, they were summarily arrested and they were put into um, a correction facility, which, if we give it its proper name, was a concentration camp. And in that camp, Sue told us a story that was so harrowing in the hearing, God forbid what it must have been like in the experience. And the difficulty was, she didn't tell us a story of great salvation at all. She told us a story of years of relentless suffering. Her husband, did not survive the experience. And she barely did herself. She was malnourished. She was maltreated. She was tortured. She was close to death at one point and was even praying for death at one point. And I want to reflect on a couple of things about that story in terms of how it touched me. The first one is that when Sue went to God about the enormity of the suffering that she was having to bear up under, God said this to her, the reason that you're there is to tell the other women in the camp about Jesus. I don't know if you can cope with the audacity of a God like that. I don't know if you can cope with the idea that all this woman did was believe in Jesus and all she got for it was pain. All she got for it was pain. And then God turns around and says, now put yourself to use, woman. Sue tells us that she initially resisted this appeal from God because it could have led to her death. But eventually, she capitulated. And the miraculous thing was that um, she started to tell some of the other women in the camp about Jesus. I want to say, what kind of grace are you advertising? (laughs) What kind of grace is being taken to a concentration camp, maltreated, abused, tortured, incarcerated? What kind of advert is that? for a faith prospect that you want to give to someone and say, no, no, it's really good, have this. Why would anybody be attracted to the idea that the world of suffering that she drew down on herself was purely because of her hope in Jesus? What kind of a hope could she be advertising? And yet the miraculous thing occurred and a number of women in the camp believed in Jesus. It's astonishing to me that that could happen. Because they, um, to, to speak about Jesus or to sing a hymn or to, to, to um, talk in Christian tones amongst each other in the, in the hearing of the guards would result in, an, in a beating or worse, the women who, who had become believers conspired to go on toilet cleaning duty together so they could all be alone together in the toilets. And so in the rank toilet stalls of one of the last remaining hell on earth situations, they took to whispering the words of amazing grace between the walls. And you want to say, how can you believe that grace is amazing? Look at what is happening to you. How can that be amazing? And you also want to say, how amazing is that grace that it could penetrate these circumstances and cause the individual to give glory to God? unbelievable, and yet believable. And when we'd finished and we'd prayed for North Korea and their leaders and we'd prayed for Sue's, at Sue's request, it was decided that all five and a half thousand of us would sing Amazing Grace together. Out of the sheer respect that we had for her, we sang the first verse at a whisper. And then we pulled the roof off the place like we knew we could and five and a half thousand fractured souls gave praise to their maker because of what they had heard. And the moment was very sacred for me. And it wasn't sacred for any of the reasons that you might assume. It was sacred because for the first time in my life, standing next to me was my 14 year old daughter and I could hear her singing a hymn to our God. And I could hear her mean it. I do have no idea why Sue's suffering was so sacramental to us. I have no idea why on that moment, on the hearing of it, it drew out a desire for the divine in my daughter, but I know that it did. There was something sacramental in suffering. And that is what Peter is trying to get at in this passage. We cannot understand it. it is not a, it's not a philosophical deconstruction that we need here. We cannot understand it. We can only appreciate it to hear Sue's story added value to the faith that I hold. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to switch modes. Uh, Mark's going to show you a, a, a PowerPoint thing that's going to roll through what I want you to do is just meditate on what it is. It talks about suffering, not just of Christians, because Christians are not the only people who suffer. Um, and all of the stuff that you see here has got, got um, good references, and I can give them to you if you want them. And so I just want us to spend a little bit of time um, just meditating on this idea. And then, I'm, and then I'm gonna come back. Just a small technical point. If you're, the, you're like me and you have the little bar of people down the right-hand side of the screen, if you minimize that, you'll be able to read all the words. Okay, Mark, thanks. Okay, I should be back with you, you now because someone wave to me that I'm back. With it. Right, perfect. Let me—it's really funny. You all wave. That's really nice. Um, let me go go on as I said at the beginning um, to give what is fundamentally an existential plea, an emotional reaction to the passage we have read, and it takes the form of two statements. The first is that to be a Christian is to follow a suffering Savior, and that the suffering of fellow Christians. Validates our faith. Let me just for a few minutes unpack each of those. Sin leads to suffering, leads to sorrow. It is indicative of what it is to be human, and we are none of us non innocent in that. This is the root and branch of the Christian faith. If you don't believe that, you need to get on another bus. God's conclusion, God's solution, God's desire for dealing with that was that a man would come, and the man is called the man of sorrows, someone who is acquainted with suffering, someone who is familiar with grief, someone who will be despised and rejected. Those who know their Bibles will know that I'm quoting a very famous servant song in Isaiah 53, and there are various other places in Isaiah where this person is promised, this person who, who will come and who will suffer. Now, Isaiah 53 is way too long for me to read for you, but let me give you just a couple of um highlights um, in the later parts of it, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer, because he poured out his life unto death. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. He was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgression. This person was promised, and we understand that that comes in the life and person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus knew about this. He was cognizant of this um, end for himself, and he spoke about it frequently. But one of the most passionate places where he spoke about his accepting the mantle of a suffering servant was when he actually died. Because what he did when he died, it's well recorded, is that he quoted another a song this time, another prophetic piece of the scripture. Um, he quoted it. Everybody's very familiar with it. He's only recorded as having uttered the first line of the song. Um, so everybody's familiar with it. It goes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People are less familiar with the rest of it, but it is actually available in the scriptures. And so again, it's very long, so I'm not going to read it all. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to choose a few choice pieces from it from something that was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, see if you find the imagery familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I am a worm, not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. You, you, you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me and a pack of villains encircles me and they pierce my hands and my feet. All my my bones are on display and people stare and gloat over me and they divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me deliver me, and he was not delivered, he was not, he was left in that death, he was left in that despair, he reeked of it, he died of it, he was gone in it, it did not come, salvation did not come, this is the beating heart of Christianity, this is who we follow, I don't understand it, I can't always comprehend it, but I know that hearing of suffering like that tells me about my worth and it adds value to the faith that I have. The suffering of fellow Christians adds value to our faith, I don't fully comprehend the matter and yet it is true. Peter who wrote the passage that we're reading Yeah, okay, he was living in a time when Christians were persecuted. Yeah, okay, he he was familiar with imprisonments and beatings himself. Yeah, okay, things were tough for Christians back then, but he was writing to us and he was saying, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So those who suffer according to God's will, according to God's will, those who suffer, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I don't understand why Sue had to go through what she had to go through. I don't understand why tens of thousands of Sue's country folk are still going through it. I don't understand why hundreds of thousands of Christians have gone before us and suffered in this way. And all I can do, all I can do is react to it. And when I react to it, the thing that makes me realize is that I will loiter at the door of heaven. I will be a loiterer there because I will be forced to say no after you. No, after you. No, please, after you. Soon her friends deserve to go all the way to the throne where the blood of the martyrs cries out because they mixed their blood with the blood of the martyrs. They suffered as the martyrs did. I will be happy with a seat with a restricted view at the back. We don't have to understand why the suffering of others validates our faith. It's not that they paid a great cost for their faith. They didn't. They didn't pay any more than we did. It is that they considered it so value, so valuable that they paid an enormous cost. They paid everything not to give it up. And that's staggering to me in Solihull. That's staggering to me. And it adds value to the faith that I profess. I don't understand it. I don't comprehend it. I just react to it. And I know that that is what it does. Jesus, when he was on his way to the suffering that that psalm speaks about, the Bible tells us, set his face for Jerusalem. He intended to go through with it. He knew what was going to happen. He intended to go through with it. And he calls us in the great command to lay down our lives for each other unto death, just as he was showing us what has happened. He intended it to be a mandate for us that we are all called to set our face for Jerusalem. I don't expect to suffer for the name of Christ in Solihull today. I don't think that's going to happen to any of us. I do expect to suffer. I think we all do. Any of of us who live long enough know that into every life rain will fall and suffering will come. And what this exhortation says is that you must know Christ in that suffering. And that is very hard. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before him was you, that you would be saved, was Sue, that she would be saved. Was anybody else that will be saved? That was the joy that was set before him. So when we suffer as Christians, we don't suffer like other people do. We suffer anticipating some kind of joy in it, which is a ridiculous idea, but it's there because you will know him, you will follow him, you will encounter him, you will endure with him in your suffering. And knowing Christ and having the joy set before you of a faith that transcends this life is a better kind of suffering. And I do not understand it. And do not comprehend it, but it is part of the beating heart of Christianity that we accept these things. To be a Christian is to follow a suffering servant, a suffering saviour. The suffering of other Christians improves and validates our understanding of the worth of our faith. And we're all called in our own ways to set our faces for Jerusalem. I wish it was a tad more cheerful to tell you all that, but it's right here. It's right here. You can't just intellectualize away what you are being told and have a mature faith. Sometimes you just have to react. Amen.